and welcome to the Q York podcast, brought to you from our local church in the beautiful city of York in the UK. The message you're about to hear is from one of our services, which also feature great live music and relevant movie clips. These can all be found on our blog, so to make sure you're getting the full experience, feel free to head over to qyork.co.uk and select blog to find the relevant content. There's also a huge selection of talks and live music videos on our media page, as well as a donate button if you'd like to show your appreciation and enable us to keep producing free content like this. Finally, to stay up to date on new blogs and events at Q, you can sign up for emails by filling in your name and email address at the bottom of any page on the website. But right now, it's time for the message. So, uh, <laughs> here's my date with destiny, um, talking about suffering this morning, and I, I promise that the next one is going to be, as my daughter says, funner. Uh, <laughs> it's in the back hall as well, so that's got all the ingredients of something a bit lighter. But here we are. And uh, I just want to intro it by saying this. My mom, when she was 11, lost her dad. And she believes that her stepfather and her mother killed him. There was a police investigation which never concluded that, but that was her belief. And by the time she was 11, uh, 16, her hair was gray, um, and my earliest memory of her, her hair was white. She was top of her class at 11, and she never did anything again at school. Um, she never had a driving license, she never had a passport, and she lived a small life, and she has dementia now. And she and my dad broke up when I was six, and I remember going um, to my uncle's house, and my uncle said to my dad, you've ruined him, that's me, you'll never do anything good now. He lived with that for the rest of his life, and every small achievement of mine he celebrated more than was ever proportionate because it was disproving the thesis that our destiny is set before. And so I just want to say, suffering, and you have stories like that, you have worse stories than that. We all have. They're in our lives. They're part of the fabric of our lives. And so I come to this with some humility uh, but with my own pain and my own story, and you'll be listening with your own pain and your own story. And that's why this talk, in some ways, is a bit different to any other that I've done, and I prepped for it in a completely different way. All right, let's have the first clip. That was Nick Cave, for anyone who doesn't know. Nick Cave lost his father in a car accident at 21, and he lost two of his three sons in 2018, no, 2015 and 2022. And he started the red hand files that he was talking about initially as just a way for his fans to be able to communicate. And what it's turned into is what he was describing, a way for people to ask him life's 
biggest and deepest questions. You heard Billy's question, the situation with his wife and his employer. That's what theologians and philosophers call moral evil. So people doing bad things to each other. And then there's a question um, that he also talks about outside of that clip from someone called Alison, whose brother died in his 20s, and she is asking, can I let go of my anger and grief because I think it's who I've become? Am I going to lose myself? That's what we call natural evil, disease, death, uh, tragedy from natural disasters, that kind of thing. They're the two kinds of evil that philosophers and theologians grapple with, but those are the two kinds of evil that we grapple with every day of our lives. In fact, Susan Naiman has written a book called Evil in Modern Thought, and she argues that the question of evil, natural and moral, is the real theme of the whole of Western philosophy. And just like the clip, as soon as we embark on a journey to try and understand this at all, we go in the river, it's fast moving, and we're out of our depth. These are questions, spoiler alert, these are questions that in the end we can't answer. But this is Q, so that doesn't stop us, right? <laughs> and the problem of evil, so-called, is actually the biggest problem facing Christianity. But every belief system has got to face the question of evil and suffering. And I just want to start by looking at two other belief systems very quickly. And the first is atheism. Could we have the slides up, please? That's the Red Hand Files and a younger Nick Cave. There we go. Atheism acknowledges suffering, natural disasters, disease, pain, and death. It considers them part of the natural functioning of the world. And as a result, it's common for atheists to say that they don't have a problem of evil. And in a way, they don't. Atheists do not have to explain anything. However, I think they might face an even bigger problem, which is that if our suffering is random and meaningless, we might live our lives on the edge of meaninglessness as well. Richard Dawkins says this, nature's not cruel, it's only pitilessly indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. I've tried to provide an answer to Alison and to Billy over the course of the talk. 
I've tried to make them as sympathetic as I possibly can. These answers are not literally what you would say to someone, just in case you think I'm the most insensitive human being alive. <laughs> but there's some kind of answer formulated out of whatever it is we're talking about. And I think to Alison, atheism would say, sorry for your loss. This is an unpredictable universe at work. Your brother was not singled out or judged. And to Billy, as my friend, I'm sorry this has happened to you, but people don't always live by the moral consensus that we've evolved. I'll come back to atheism at the end. The other belief system that I think has a lot to say about suffering and a lot to offer is Buddhism. It addresses the subject extensively, and dukkha means life doesn't satisfy and is usually actually shortened to suffering. In Buddhism, there's three kinds of um, suffering. There's physical and mental pain from age, sickness, and death. There's the pain of loss and change. And there's what they call existential suffering. It's the angst of being human and subject to rebirth. Buddhism teaches that we're enslaved by our own expectations, and they're often based on a delusion about how the world really is, and the way out of that is to become enlightened. And they also believe in karma. In fact, I didn't know this, Buddha had a bad back that was attributed to his behavior in a wrestling match in a previous life. <laughs> so what's the message to Alison from Buddhism? You do need to let your brother go. Rather than losing yourself, you reduce your suffering and find more peace. And the message to Billy, reduce your attachment and expectations towards your wife and employer and live a moral life through right speech, action, and livelihood. Those are core elements of the Buddhist faith. And you might say, I haven't studied uh, Buddhism, but some of that sounds a bit familiar. And just for a bit of fun, because we're short on fun, Quick, a quick clip. Much like Buddhism, Yoda is. <laughs> so as we bring this first section to a close, atheism offers us naturalism. Suffering is to do with the blind workings of a universe, and it doesn't carry any meaning. And Buddhism tells us, firstly, to face up to the real world, but then to detach our expectations and our attachments to people and things so that we suffer less. Let's take that into the context by which we then really face into the problem of evil for Christianity after this next clip. So this is going to be a quick tour through all the theory of the problem of evil not as quick as we'd like, you might say, quite soon. <laughs> Could we have the slide with, there we go.
So suffering and evil present a particular problem to the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, but especially Christianity because of the claim that God is a God of love. And a defense of God is called a theodicy. And we're going to look at how those work. The problem of evil, to state it formally, is that if God is all-powerful and all-loving, why does God allow evil and suffering? And given that suffering is a fact, except for those people who think that suffering is an illusion, and they do exist, God must be either unable to stop it, so he's not all-powerful, unwilling to stop it, and is therefore not loving, or doesn't exist in the first place. That's the problem of evil. It's the biggest question facing the Christian faith, and indeed other faiths that have similar claims. The backdrop's the same in, in a Christian context. Creation was good. Humans fell by choosing something out of bounds. The fall brought moral and natural evil into the world, and so we suffer. However, Jesus came and dealt with both moral and natural evil on the cross and its natural consequence, death. However, during this time, the kingdom of God coexists still with evil, and so we experience an already but not yet situation, sometimes known as eschatological tension. If you've got a night of romance and you're not in the mood, just say to your partner, I've got, eschatolog I've got eschatological tension tonight. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <clears throat> but eventually, this period of coexistence is resolved and we end up with a new heaven and a new earth. The problem with this is there's so much room for maneuver in it in the area of suffering and evil. And so I'm going to go back to Danny's talk because the first big fork is determinism versus free will. So deterministic suffering says that all suffering is God's will, a.k.a. everything happens for a reason. Could we have the next slide, please? This is Joni Erickson Tarda. Some of you will be familiar with her. When she was 17, she jumped into shallow water and has been paralyzed from the shoulders down ever since. She believes that that situation was a merciful act of God because she was going away from God in her teens. She believes that all suffering is ordained by God in every detail who totally controls our lives. But this suffering is all for a higher purpose, known only to God, and will prove good as we look back from eternity. This view is particularly popular with fundamentalists because it deals with absolutes. God is still in total control, but is still totally good 
because somehow when we look back, that will be shown. What's the answer to Alison and Billy from this? God willed your situations for reasons that will prove to be good in the end. You need to trust God and find lessons and opportunities for growth. It's really easy to dismiss, but someone who's been paralyzed since they were 17 believes it. And therefore, I, I feel like it can't just be dismissed. Uh, it's also a highly um, believed point of view amongst Christians. But what about the other fork? That's the, uh, the determinism fork. What about the free will fork? Well, it's a fork that forks, but essentially, the idea here, the theodicy here, is that God is all-powerful and all-loving. However, for us to genuinely have free will, we have to be able to make choices, and those choices have to include choosing bad things. And that has an impact on each other, on the environment, and everything else. And so God suspends his ability to fix everything in order that we can truly be free and in the image of God as a, as a result of that. There are three branches of this super quick. Number one, the traditional one. In this one, God does make limited interventions in response to prayer. God sometimes curtails or avoids suffering, judges evil, and sometimes heals, but in such a way as to not overturn free will in any substantial way. And just going back to Kev's talk, that could be why it's easier to provide a snicker than it is to stop a war. Because in some ways, the smaller the intervention, the less you've interfered with human free will. The second variant of this is called open theism. And it says God doesn't actually know the detail of the future because our free will is real and it unfolds in real time. So God finds out as we do and then responds. This is an increasingly popular view that actually came out of the evangelical wing of the church. And then the final one is process theology. In this one, God, who is a spirit, is not actually able to alter the physical world. And because God has a commitment to completely autonomous free will, because love cannot interfere with that free will, doesn't interfere, and only works through other people. Now, the problem with open theism, which is quite attractive in lots of ways, but the problem is, is a God who doesn't know the future really all-powerful, and is that actually the God depicted in the Bible? And the process God, the God who created the physical universe and resurrected Jesus from the dead apparently can't do anything in the world created by God. It just seems a bit implausible. And for anyone who's got kids, 
do you think overriding their free will is always unloving? Because you'd have quite a time, I think, if you tried to raise a family that way. So there are problems here, but the traditional free will defense is also very common, has fewer issues, I think, than open theism and process theology, but is hardly a complete answer. What would free will theodicy say to Alison and Billy? God did not want this suffering, but allowed it as the cost of human freedom. God will help you move forward in ways that bring some good from the situation, either directly or through other people. Sorry, I, could we have the next one just for a moment that I should have already had? That's God intervening. And then the next one? Okay. But is suffering good for us? Somehow. John Hick, who's a local theologian, actually went to Hull University, lived in America for a long time, dead now. Uh, someone who also lost a son, so not someone writing a theoretical piece in a book. Describes suffering as inevitable and calls it soul-making. Argues that we are born unfinished and suffering is the way that we are completed. Which sounds a bit like that bit in Hebrews that says that Jesus was perfected through suffering. But what about the people who are not perfected? They're actually emotionally, mentally, or physically destroyed by their suffering. Where was the soul-making for the victims of 9-11? Free will arguments, on the other hand, say that God brings good out of bad in response to suffering, but that that's not the reason for suffering. But you do have to acknowledge something here, and that is that many people who've suffered have grown. And some, including Joni, would not have it any other way. She would not change the events when she was 17. And I was talking to my youngest son, who's had a really tough time for two or three years, who said exactly the same thing to me in the car, 19 years old. Do you remember if you were here for Claire's talk? We were trying to work out last night how to say her name. I think it's Marina... Abramovic, Abramovic, Abramovic. Um, she's a performance artist. But she said this recently, which I thought was interesting. If you look at the history of art, everything comes from tragedy and unhappiness. I don't see any good art made out of happiness. And Danny sent me some link um, to something suggesting that orphans basically lead the entire world. They're massively overrepresented as world leaders, great thinkers of history, and so on. 
And the argument for how this comes to be true is that through this, they transcend their suffering and they become greater than they would have been. Also, Danny, there's an episode of The Twilight Zone called A Nice Place to Visit. I rewatched it. It's very funny. This petty criminal wakes up in what he believes to be heaven in which he can have anything that he wants. And after a month, he can't stand it anymore. And he says, I need to go to the, o- <laughs> to the other place. Send me to the other place because I can't stand this. And the guy who he thought was an angel says, you're already in the other place, and laughs a hideous laugh. (laughs) Because it could be that we actually need some suffering and struggle and hardship to develop, grow, and create. But I don't think we can treat all suffering as having that purpose because some of it simply destroys people, and I think we have to acknowledge that too. So in this brief, in this brief trip through Christian theodicy, we see there's a range of options available. I personally don't think any of them provide a single clear and convincing answer to our question. And perhaps that's not a surprise. And when I began this talk, I thought that once I'd done this bit, it would be the end of the talk. And you can imagine that talk and wish for it. But that's not what's happened. (laughs) Because after much reflection, I've concluded that real suffering exists on an entirely different plane of human existence to the intellectual discussion about suffering. And in fact, our theories insensitively communicated can make things worse. Kate, a real person who at the time of writing had terminal colon cancer, wrote, a lot of Christians like to remind me that heaven is my true home, which makes me want to ask them if they'd like to go home first. (laughs) Maybe now, (laughs) she says. She also continues saying, Sometimes I want every know-it-all to send me a note when they face the grisly specter of death, and I'll send them a cap poster that says, hang in there. So what lies beyond answers? Well, having swum into the middle, we need to go way down low. Next clip. So if the answers don't lie in our head, where do they lie? C.S. Lewis wrote two books on suffering. The first was The Problem of Pain. It's clever, it's well-argued, articulate. It's written at the height of his intellectual powers, and I found it so utterly cold that I could hardly finish it. His second book is called A Grief Observed When He'd Lost His Wife. It's a shorter book. It's utterly raw. He asks big, accusing questions of God. He was shattered by her death, and he did not refer to his own previous book once.
The truth is that suffering happens at a visceral level. It's deep inside. We respond because we know things are not supposed to be this way. We protest. But we also create art, lament, poetry, and music because nothing else can actually contain our experiences. Dylan Thomas captures the essence of this when he writes in his poem about old age, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Could we just have the slide, please, with the candle on it? There it is. And this sentiment is rampant in the Bible. But the problem is we've textbookized the Bible in the way that Jenny was talking about. We hardly see it. But here is Psalm 88, translated by Peter Enns, that some of you will be familiar with. I'm going to put my glasses on, just for fun. Oh, look. <laughs> oh, Lord. I've been on my knees to you night after night. I'm so troubled and in so much agony, I feel like I've got one foot in the grave in deep and dark places. I'm absolutely without hope, including in you, and you really don't seem to care. Actually, let me be blunt. You've abandoned me, and so this is all your fault. You're the one who makes me feel like this. You're even the one responsible for my own friends looking at me like I'm some kind of freak show. Even so, all night and all day, I'm on my knees praying, still calling to you for some relief. I'm desperate, but you keep on hiding. I'm in absolute pain, and the only friend I have is darkness. Thanks for nothing. That's Psalm 88 in our Bible. So here's the weird thing that I've concluded. Don't get too excited about the word concluded. <laughs> Even though our suffering is somehow evidence against God, our deep reaction to it is evidence for God. Somehow we demand meaning in our lives. We are affronted by the pain of the world for ourselves and for others. We reflect something that we can't explain and we can't come to terms, most of us, with the atheist perspective of it simply meaning nothing at all. And it turns out that that response to suffering is exactly what we see in Jesus. Could we have the next slide, please? When Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out using the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had exactly the same questions that we have at the absolute end of ourselves. Jesus did not from the cross articulate a theodicy. He did not explain the theology of suffering he cried out and asked why God had abandoned him. And the theologians are very slowly rejecting the God of Greek philosophy who is transcendent, immutable, impassable, and timeless. They say that not only did 
Jesus suffer, but God constantly suffers with us and because of us. They suggest that God is grieved and perhaps even changed, and that word change is theological dynamite because we've taught for so long that that can't be true, but let's raise it as a possibility that God is changed by our suffering and pain. And what does this all mean? Well, maybe that we shouldn't retreat into our conceptions of a clockwork universe that I was talking about, where God is outside and we're in this autonomous, separate world. Could it even be that God co-protests with our suffering and pain and feels it all because God is intimately connected with every quantum particle that makes up our existence? God is not distant and silent. God is in it, literally and metaphorically. So is that the best we can do? Is there nothing else? Well, there is one more thing, just one. What about the future? So not everyone believes in an afterlife, but most religions do, and if you count reincarnation, almost all religions do. And from a specifically Christian perspective, the Bible promises that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. And so we briefly, could we have the next slide, please? I love this thing. It's a it's an art installation which sort of creates an infinite number of uh, versions of yourself. You put your, someone's put their iPhone and their head in that circle and you appear everywhere. We have to try and glimpse into the eternal and the infinite for a moment, which is very difficult. There's actually a deep dialogue started between philosophers, theologians, and scientists. It's partly come from quantum physics, and it's partly come from panentheism that I was talking about briefly the last time I was here. How, how did that happen? Um, most scientists agree that entropy is increasing in the universe. That means it's becoming more and more disordered. And the amusing colloquial description of how that ends among scientists is freeze or fry. But the hope of Christianity is that God interrupts that process of inevitable destruction in something called creatio ex vetera. It basically means intervening to make something new out of something old. The idea is before the universe reaches its end point, God intervenes and changes our broken, dying universe into something new and eternal. And if it sounds implausible, we're invited to believe that that's exactly what we saw in miniature in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And intriguingly, and I've started doing this, and I'm sorry, I'm going to do it 
to you. Reading scriptures that I've seen for like 30 years and suddenly thinking, gosh, maybe it means something completely different. So here we go, and here's the glasses. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, My friends, I want you to know that our bodies of flesh and blood will decay. This means they can't share in God's kingdom, which lasts forever. I'll explain a mystery to you. Not every one of us will die, but we will all be changed. It will happen suddenly, quicker than the blink of an eye. At the sound of the last trumpet, the dead will be raised. We'll all be changed so that we'll never die again. Our dead and decaying bodies will be changed into bodies that won't die or decay. The bodies we now have are weak and can die, but they'll be changed into bodies that are eternal. And Danny sometimes asks, what do we need saving from? And maybe an answer is a universe that's on its way to freeze or fry. And maybe salvation is to do with that intervention into that decay to create something new and eternal, not some meaningless individualistic formula of salvation that we've turned it into. But maybe God's intention is very big indeed. Look, it's a hopeful speculation, but we can't know. So for now, I think accepting the uncertainties of life protesting against suffering in whatever way is natural for us, avoiding collapse and bitterness, and embracing whatever change and renewal is possible as we look for the next best action is good advice for Billy, for Alison, and for us. Double opinion warning as we finish. I can't live with the atheistic idea of the meaninglessness of all of this. It doesn't correlate with my experience. And I like the way that Buddhism encourages us to face the reality of the world in which we live. But rather than diminish our attachments and expectations, I actually want to cling to my attachments ever closer to get me through the suffering in my life. I think everything that Yoda said was wrong, even though he's very cute. (laughs) And so what are we left with? Here's where I'm left at the end of the journey. I'm unsure about how the hand of God works, having looked as closely as I can. But I'm more determined than ever to swim to the middle of the river, even with its fast flowing current, to stay a while and to hope against hope, because I think anything else just diminishes us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then we would love to hear from you feel free to drop us an email to info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. Don't forget there are blogs and all sorts of media to be enjoyed at qyork.co.uk, which are welcome to browse at your leisure. Until next time, enjoy the quest.